Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to a really special episode of The Neuro Show, featuring an in-person chat with the vegan cyclist, Tyler Pierce. In today's show, we're going to talk about why he has chosen gravel. He's going to rate some of his canyon bikes that he's ridden. How much is he making from YouTube? And why is he so sheepish about the ultra-distant nationals title? But we're going to start the chat with a discussion about the future of road racing in the US. What's wrong with bike racing in the US, Tyler? Seriously, like this is this is the narrative, isn't it? You hear it on all the comments that I, I've even a couple of races that I've done while I've been here. People seem to be giving out about it. You're in an interesting position because you were slash are a road racer. You're going through this transition that I feel like so many people in this country are going through. What are the push and pull factors? What's what's going on here? Yeah, well, I mean, so if you look at the forums or on Facebook and uh, comments. Uh, especially in NorCal, it, it, all the races are getting canceled because there's not enough people registered. And so there's very few races that you can even attend. Um, as of where like flashback like five years ago, you could go to five different races in the same weekend in California. You know, there, there was a Saturday, Sunday race in SoCal, a Saturday, Sunday race, NorCal, you know, and sometimes even there would be anyways, there was so many options. And uh, and now, man, people just aren't signing up. Um, they're not signing up early. And it, there's also not a lot of marketing. So, I mean, you could point to a lot of different reasons why road racing is dying. Uh, but I think one of the things a lot of the promoters, it's it's uh, very expensive. There's a lot of risk. There's not a whole lot of reward. Um, most promoters that come in and they're like, we're going to change up, you know, everything. We're going to make this great race. They do one year, they lose a ton of money and they don't come back. So then the promoters that you have that have everything ironed out and they know how to run a race, they're super old school. So if you don't have Facebook, how do you find out about racing in NorCal? You know, and, and that's, I don't know how else you would ever actually find out. If you're a new 18, 19, 20 year old, and you're like, well, what, where's a, a good road race? You're not gonna even have the ability to find out how to register, where to go, anything about it, but you go on YouTube and what do you see? Floods of gravel races. So you, you know, Unbound is marketing through influencers. Uh, BWR, I mean, all these things. So you just assume, well, that's the only thing that's out there. You don't actually know about San Ardo or the University Road Race or Copperopolis, which are all great, amazing races. But so, like, from your perspective, though, as a rider, like, put put the whole content stuff aside for a moment, right? So you're going through this this 
position where you were, racing bikes. I can see pictures around here of you racing crits and road races and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden the pictures start changing and you've got hydration packs on and all kinds of other bits and pieces. But like from your perspective, just looking at it as, as a rider then, like why are you moving across? It's not just because you know those races are on. You, I'm not talking about the wider population here. Like why are you making that move? One, I, I, I want to spend my time doing something that I know I'll be able to justify. And okay, where I'm at, it's four hours to a 60 minute crit. And if I get there and nine people show up and two of them are insanely fast and they break away and in five minutes, I'm just rolling around in a car parking lot. Like that's, that's an eight hour drive. That's all this time. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And so um, I used to be able to justify that because the races were huge. There would be a hundred people in a crit and it was like so exciting and fun. and. Uh, but now it's just also, I don't really have any, any avenue to win a P one, two bike race because now that the, the size of the fields are so small, you have such a small group of people that are just wildly fit and you're just like, well, okay, I can't even compete with these guys at all. And when you have like a huge group dynamic, you can sort of hide, you can luck out in a break you know it's not always the strongest guy but when it's a small field of like 15 or 20 the, the strong guys are gonna they're gonna do well you know and so uh so hang on hang on this sounds like all right this sounds like a roundabout way of saying that you're not racing the road races because you they got too good like it's too hard to get a result and therefore you know what it's not my playing field anymore so i'm going to try and find another avenue of this sport that potentially i can get a result in i i, I would love to do more road racing i always tell myself like oh, i'm going to do more but then when i start looking into logistics of driving so far i mean if there was stuff close like i'd absolutely do that but all the stuff that's close gets uh, canceled. There's not enough people. Um, or, you know, it's just like, okay, I have to be so, so, so fit just to even not get dropped within the first little bit. So then, you know, timing-wise, it's just like, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to go for a great training ride in Yosemite? Or do I want to have a good time? Or do I want to cash in all these you know, chips to, to go. And the, the, so I did a road race this year. Um, and it was like a hundred mile road race, uh, really rough roads and, and super heat. So I was like, oh, this is going to be like, this is kind of like a gravel race, right? Uh, the roads were really rough and I went out there. I stayed the night. I, I brought two bikes. Like I was all stoked. And then I dropped my GoPro immediately on, on like the parade to the start and then uh, I went back and grabbed it. We hit this little tiny climb and then I never flat, but I got a small little leak. And then we got to the top of the climb and I'm dropped in five minutes. And, and a bunch of people got flats and a lot of people had issues, but then it was like, well, dude, I just did all this for five minutes of riding and you can't enjoy the rest of your day. You don't just keep riding 
a shitty road course in the middle of nowhere. And with gravel, often you're in really amazing areas and the field is a thousand or more. And so then getting like, okay, I'm gonna fix the flat, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix my stuff and I'm gonna come back and I'm still gonna get 30th or 40th. Like that feels like a good day. But in road racing, you're just done, you're done. And so I was like, man, that really sucked. <laughs> uh, and then I watched the whole race play out and it was, um, I mean, I wish I was there. I wish I had stayed in the group. Maybe, maybe the answer is like, so not the answer, but like road racing is hard, etc. But maybe it's just a sport for like younger people, like essentially in the sense that maybe us sitting here and complaining about road racing is just pathetic as like two, two old blokes trying to stay fit, like get over yourselves guys. Like, Yes, road racing is hard. Yes, you're probably going to get dropped by guys who are 18. Don't whinge that then there's something wrong with the sport. It's just you. Like, and now that's perfectly fine. You can move on and, move, and you've got all these other options now, like the gravel stuff, like the ultra stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of options, but uh, I just think that it's accessibility. So one, is it close to you? And a lot of people will scoff at an hour drive, right? And they're like, I'm not gonna drive an hour. I'm like, bro, I gotta drive four to six hours one way to go race. So if I wanna race in LA, it's six, seven hours. If I wanna race up north, it's four hours. And so then when people are like, ah, it's far away, it's an hour, like, dude, come on. And so then, then when those people aren't willing to drive, now your event doesn't really grow and if there's a hundred people in a field, that's so much fun, regardless of your result. But when there's 15 people, uh, you know what I mean? It's like, it's hard to just, and then people don't register. So then they wait to the day of, because they're like, well, let me see how many people show up. Then the promoter just eats dicks because it's like, dude, we, we, are we gonna gamble that the day of we go from losing five grand to making $500? Um, it's just, it's just difficult. I think the whole business model is really gnarly. And so like crit racing still seems to be uh, doing okay. And, and SoCal, I mean, obviously it's kind of like the, the Mecca down there, but like, you know, their fields are huge. The NCL, they're getting super investors and they're trying to like change up how racing is done. And, and which I don't totally, uh, dig it as a viewer because it's really complicated. But I think as a racer, it would be really fun to uh, not be like, well, I'm just going to sit on the back or I got to make this Hail Mary move. Like you get to have a victory for your team by getting points. Yeah. And so it's kind of a neat, a neat situation. You know what blew my mind? I love that I'm talking as an expert having done one road race in California. But what blew my mind was the teams here. And I wouldn't mind running this past year, all right? So, yeah, we've got teams in Australia, et cetera, and, and especially at, like, the, the higher level, the national level of racing. But as you kind of drop down through the categories or you drop into the age group stuff, it disperses pretty quickly. And I would argue that you could do a master's or a lower category race in Australia and the majority, I'd be pretty confident, would to say would be not on teams, 
flying solo, okay? So my one road race experience. I think I was the only person in my 25-man race that wasn't on a team, which I ran a team for seven years, so I'm not going to sit here and bemoan teams. They provide, you know, especially for junior guys, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go into that kind of crap. But just the dynamic of racing and the way it changed that race, I think feeds a little bit into what you were saying about it being this, oh, it's 5Ks of racing and then the guys go up the road and you can't chase and your day's over. Because the situation that I found was if, you're, if a couple of these teams, and there were three major teams, had a rider in the move, every other person in that race was like, cool, cool. Teammate up the road, man. Teammate up the road. I'm like, what are we going to do for the next two and a half hours? Well, so I think there's this narrative that was like shamed people for chasing their teammates. And that was rampant. Like, no you could be literally on the very back of the pack. You're getting dropped and you're getting back on the pack. And it's like, bro, why are you chasing your teammates? And it's like, what? there's a move of 40 people going up the road. And it's like, yeah, but... You should, you should give them their, and it's like, okay. Uh, and so then I think a lot of people built this idea of like, well, I can't, I can't even try to make that move. Um, and so then it gets really negative. The racing gets so negative. It's super hot. Everyone attacks, but then they shut it down immediately. It's like five, 10 seconds of going because nothing happens. And it's just that over and over and over until a small group goes up. And then, like you said, if there's four or five guys and teams represented, which I know in the tour, it's like, okay, but this is not the tour. You're, you're out here spending your Saturday. And did you come and sign up to not race your bike? Like, that's what's so weird to me as like, I, I like to race. And one of the last races, road races I did, Snelling, which is like a really big race um, and I made a move. All the teams were represented. I was so stoked. And then the Mike Spikes guys were like, well, we're not going to pull because we have a sprinter in the field. So, so you're not going to chase a break because you got a guy in a break, but you're also not going to push the break because you got, got, got a guy in the field. You know, like, dude, what am I doing here? And so then you're trying to make your, make your pulls. You're trying to race. And it's like, well, these are the tactics. I actually did a video one time and I got flamed on it because we got into a break and this guy just sat on the entire time and he was like well i've got teammates in the field so i don't need to pull and it's like but this is we're racing our bikes so like race your bike you don't have to empty the tank on the front for us but like can we at least establish this break and so it gets really negative and then people are like, well, don't complain. That's tactics. Just be stronger. And it's like, yeah, but then that makes me not want to race my bike because it's like, oh, are, are we not racing today? We're just going to roll around. I'm going to watch a group of guys go off the front. No one's going to chase. So then the only way for me to do anything is to burn every match I have to chase every single thing. Um, and then when I do make that break, no one wants to work in the break. So, but that's NorCal racing in my opinion. When I raced SoCal stuff, the racing is so fast that the crits, at least they're like 28 to 30 mile an hour crits that you're, you don't really have those surges. 
and it's really hard to get off the front at that speed. And so then what actually ends up happening is it, it's way safer, even though you're going way faster and everyone's so close, uh, the difference, the dis discrepancy in speed isn't there. So you don't have someone coming at 32 miles an hour off the side of the group while someone's pulling off at 15. Um, you know, and then, and then it feels like you're racing because you're going hard, you're going fast. And, and the teams like Legion and, and, you know, uh, a couple other teams, like they're, they're not going to just sit up on the front and let some guy roll off. Even if they have someone up the front, I mean, they're not like actively on the gas, but they are not sitting up, not pedaling and just. My whole thing with this is there's, there's nuance to tactics, okay? And again, ran a race team for seven years. We, we were very big about tactics. Tactics is an important part of bike racing. In fact, it's almost one of the reasons I would defend a team in the sense that it is really good for people to learn about real bike racing tactics. Now, that is more than just, I got a teammate up the road, I'm not chasing. That is like, kindergarten okay elementary school tactics there is so much more to bike racing i can give you so many really cool examples of races that we did where we had guys in the move and we in fact i tell a great story about jesse being in a move and we brought him back our team brought him back because we thought the way that this the guys that he was with we didn't we didn't trust jesse in that particular circumstance we brought him back I won't go into the big details, but we won the race. In fact, we went one too. It was kind of one of the highlights of my whole time with Nero. So my point, though, is that there is nuance to this and it's not good enough to just play kindergarten tactics, especially when you have such numerical advantage. It's probably not the right word, but it's, it's the kind of thing that... There is so much more we can do in the race to make this interesting. Well, I really fell in love with tactics. When I first started racing, like I thought it was so fun. Uh, Justin Williams said this, like you're, you're playing chess uh, at whatever, 30 miles an hour. That is so fun to be racing your bike, trying to stay clear, understand who's in the race, when people are going. It's so fun. But when you repeatedly come to the chessboard with your chess set and people are playing connect four or tic-tac-toe, you're like, wait, I don't, I thought I was playing this game. And then they get mad at you for playing chess. You know what I mean? And it's like, wait, you're gonna yell at me? And, and, and I had that experience so many times, no matter what I did. I'm in the group, I have a teammate up the road, people yell at me for not, not racing, not, not bringing that move back. I get up the road, people in, in the break are like, well, I'm not gonna pull cause I got someone back there. And it's just like, what? You know, and then, then I, I try to play those games and I'm like, okay, well, if you guys are gonna play these games and when I get into a break, I'm not gonna pull, but then no one pulls. So then we just get brought back. And so what, I, I guess the idea is that unless you're a pure sprinter, or an absolute, you're way stronger than anyone you can just ride away. It's very hard to have any sort of success. Mm, and, and which I love about bike racing because 
the one time you do somewhat get near the podium, like it feels really, really good because of how hard it is. But when you are uh, an overall, you know, rounder type type rider, um, unless you have a, a solid team and you guys are racing as a team, it's just not doesn't become that fun. So when you do gravel stuff, now your skill set you can apply in in many different avenues. And, you know, you can be a better bike handler. What, there's all these different things that become apparent. Like, okay, I can play chess now. And it's just, it's just sort of me. Even, I'm sure teams will get into gravel racing, but right now it's just it, it, the team t tactics don't really apply uh, because it's so hard. And it's... I want to go down that route because I'm really glad you said in the beginning that you fell in love like one of the reasons you fell in with road racing was because of the chess the tactics. And I kind of had this link that was like, okay, well, that's almost one of my pushbacks to gravel is I feel I would miss that. I, I really, I love that element of, is that the move I should be in? Oh God, is he the guy? I thought he was the guy I should be going. Yep, I'm going to jump across. And everyone's gassed right now. Okay, I'm going to hit them here and bring this guy with like, I love that. That's as one of that pack fodder people that you were just talking about, that's my avenue to anything in, in these races. Yeah. And I feel like I would replace that. If I'm doing gravel, I would replace that with kind of logistic success, being like I got the right tyres on today, I, I fixed my mechanical better than anyone. Like, do, do you know what I mean? 100%. It's a different, it's different tactics. Like, did you pre-ride the course? Do you know the course? You know, did you bring the right equipment? Um, and a lot of those things, like, it, it's, did you burn yourself up on a section that you didn't need to? And, you know, there's, it's like slower chess or like premeditated chess, like, uh, like, like a card game almost, like Magic the Gathering, so nerd. But like, did you bring the right deck to play? Um, because if you didn't, if you brought a road bike and it's a mountain bike race, you know, you just don't even have the cards to, to play that. I would say that at the end of the day, it's, you had a very good day on the bike. Um, but the level of talent in gravel right now is, is insane. Uh, because we used to have this, this, uh, driver of, the kids in America, all they wanted to do is get to Europe. And so then they went through these programs, you know, these development programs, um, and then didn't really have a whole lot of success. I mean, America you know, hasn't done a whole lot. Even though we have these really, really strong riders, they go and they just get used up uh, over, you know, in world tour. Um, they don't make a whole lot of money. And like Matteo Jorgensen, He's, he said he's racing like the USA national championships or something, but he has, since being a world tour, he's actually never raced in America. He's only raced like world tour. He did unbound once, but like, it's crazy to have this guy who is almost winning stages on the tour and he's actually never really raced here at home. And so with gravel racing, how cool is it that you get to be home and race here and you don't have a huge team where all the budget just gets spread across all these people. Like if you're going over to Europe, you have staff of 30. Here with gravel, you just you.
So if you can go and get your own sponsors, I mean, there's guys getting 25th. Look at me, dude, I'm DNFing Unbound. And I've probably made more money, you know what I mean, that on that one day, being you know, an influencer or whatever, then most other bike racers have made their whole year for road, right? And so then you have guys like Keegan and, and I mean, he's just insane right now, but he's making really, really good money. Um, and so then that's the, also the thing is that now we're developing kids. They're, they're not looking at Europe. They're looking at Unbound and BWR and, and Leadville. And so now they're training all the bikes like there is almost no such thing as a road rider anymore or a mountain bike rider. You just ride it all. And so and then now it's not just like, oh, well, this guy's got power, but he can't descend. It's like, well, he's a world-class mountain biker, world-class, you know, endurance athlete. He's a world-class like sprinter. He's a world-class climber. It's like, this is, it's, and it's escalated so quickly. Like we were talking about this the other day, like, no, no offense, but like it wasn't that long ago, you were a legit chance to podium unbound. Sorry to say, that day's passed, and not only is that day passed, like those boys and girls now are, yeah, as you said, like they're fully elite level athletes, and this has all happened in the space of what? What are we? What's the time frame here? Like. When you came into gravel and you yeah, were... So I want to say Ted King won Unbound in 2018. And uh, so he's like a retired bike racer, came over one. And that sort of like set his career. He's like rebirthed his career as like, oh, he's winning these races. But at that time, you have mostly just like local Joes or, or whatever. I mean, it's a, it's a tough race, but like... No one's coming in that prepared. So Ted King wins. And then I think every year after that, it's just like more and more people went, well, I think I could win. And then he, because he got paid money and he, he kind of built a brand out of it, then you had more ex-pros being like, well, I'll, I'll go do that. Then you had this like wave of ex-pros come in like Stetna and, and um, Lachlan Morton and um, a couple other guys. And it's like, they had a little bit of success, like a small window. But now you have actual prime bike racers, not you were amazing at one time and now you're trying to like have this new kick of your career, but you have guys that are 20, 21, you peak and they are training specifically for this and they are geeking out on all the, the equipment. What's that, what's that meant to you? What's that meant to your, the, 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 what am I going to call you? The advanced middle ground, basically. Oh, I'm for me, I'm smoked because like before it was cool that you could line up with these ex world tour guys, these these amazing, you know, riders and sort of play with them for a little bit. And, you know, in Texas in uh, 2021, maybe I got ninth and like eighth through first was all well-recognized names and i was like dude that's so so cool um but now that's just there's just no way and i actually got a comment someone said for all the training you do you should be winning races by 30 minutes this was at the uh colorado race i did and i said i, I mean i understand what you're thinking here 
but to win that race by 30 minutes, Vanderpool couldn't do that. These guys are, are insanely fast. Like they'll put an hour on me in one hour somehow, right? I'm like, well, I've been riding for a gap. I've been riding for an hour and somehow they're an hour up the road. It's like, this just doesn't make any sense. These guys are, and this is what they do for a living. They're doing altitude camps because the money is good enough where, dude, you could be a top 30, top 40 rider and be making like 50 to 100 grand a year through sponsors. So then, then they have no obligations, no real responsibilities. So they're just like, if you want, if you follow gravel privateers, dude, they don't have a home. They're just like living wherever they want to live out of a van or out of someone's house. And it's just like, they're living this amazing life as a bike racer, getting to travel the country. Um, it, like, okay, Dylan Johnson, he is for him. It's so unfortunate because he was like two years late. Cause right now he is flying. If he was like, if he had the same mindset, you just shift it two, three years previous, dude, he would have won Unbound and BWR and all this stuff. Like he would just crush. Uh, but now he's, you know, he's, he got 16th at Leadville and that's like, he had best his, his time. I mean, he couldn't have gone any faster. So then like, how do you, so now gravel I think is, uh, is, is in a, issue a problem where we have so much talent but no way to tell that story so filming it's very very difficult so we can't really make this into a legitimate sport until we film it like they do the tour once once that happens then i think now you can start making like amateur divisions and, and lifetime's kind of doing that they're sort of doing age group um they're starting them differently and so I'm excited about that. I don't want to do the, I don't want to race against Keegan. Give, give me, give me the 30 plus, you know, give me the, the amateur um, so that I can try to get a result. And even then it's going to be difficult. So the content thing's interesting, right? I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of where I feel you step in really because I think Jesse made this comment. It was like, gravel, gravel content was, was like invented for you, like the style of stuff that you do. So when you started getting into the gravel scene, obviously the content that you create seems to fit the narrative of that style of racing. It's, it's a little bit more ad hoc. It's... You know, you don't really know what's going to happen. You don't really know where the course is going to take you. And so the story that you tell is, is kind of fluid, for want of a better term. So, I don't know, I suppose my question's a pretty broad one, but in terms of gravel content, like, it feels like it, it came along at a perfect time for you. Well, I mean, I, I dig it, but it's hard to get people invested when it's like, so here I am racing for 55th, right? Uh, like that does it, uh, you know? Um, and so you can, but have you ever looked back at your GoPro footage from a hundred mile road race and there is zero action? You're just in the group. It's just asses everywhere. And then you've recorded the whole thing. And there was like, well, there was a move and 
I didn't get it. And so then there's no, there's no story there. There's no content. Uh, and, and so gravel, I think regardless of how you do, uh, you can tell a good story. The visuals are cool. Um, it's pretty gnarly regardless. And, and then you can be in a battle to the death for 55th. Like that can actually feel kind of important. Um, I think that once someone figures out how to really capture the front of the race and to show the dynamics, because no one knows what the front of that group is like. None of those guys, like the top 10, they're not running GoPros because they like that, not arrow. It's too heavy, whatever. Um, they're not trying to turn it on and off. Like they, this is their job. So then you don't really get that insight. Like Keegan goes and breaks the Leadville record. I mean, puts in this hu heroic ride and there's just one photo of him at the finish. Like there's no content about it. I feel like he could be the Vanderpool of America if there was more content around it. But there's just no way to like, what do you have? Like a motorcycle following him on the single track with a guy like bouncing or like, it's just, what do you do? And so then do you have a drone? Do you have like follow drones? But then there was one shot I did see where they, they tried to have a guy on an e-bike following up. I think it was like Columbine or wherever one of the last big climbs are. And the guy on the e-bike's like, he's going full gas trying to actually keep up with the guy. So it was like, uh, it all worked well. It was a good theory, but in practice, the guy on the e-bike actually probably needs to be like a Cat 1 rider anyway just to stay up there with him. But in terms of like your sponsors, how much do they value the gravel content? Like are, are they, I'm sure you have like agreements or something with, with your sponsors. Are, are they saying, look, Tyler, we want you to, to push more into the off-road stuff because that's that's your that's your go or are you still given a pretty free run? I mean it it's just about what value you provide and so uh, obviously there's more brands targeting gravel or all road so there's there's more allocated towards that um you know and then there's more people getting into that sport so if you're like hey I'm gonna I'm going to show off your brand new road tires and road bike and road helmet. Um, but 20,000 people are going to see this video. And out of that, 500 of them are even interested in getting into road. You know, it just like kind of dwindles down. As of where gravel, you might get 100,000 views or 200,000 views. And a lot of those views are people that are like, yeah, I, I do that. Because not a lot of people do road racing in the P12 level. So they're like, well, I don't really need what you have because I'll never do that. But I will ride the same course you just did. And so then, you know, they kind of feel like, well, it, it, and isn't that what like influencing is about or like sponsorships is, you know, buy this trek and you'll be just like Lance Armstrong. But that's not totally how it is anymore with road. But with gravel, it's like, well, I, I do need the right tire. Right now, the top guys, they're making a decent living. But could you imagine if Keegan, this sounds douchey, but made a video about Leadville at the quality that I could do? Like he has a GoPro in his mouth and he's getting all the shots. And then halfway through, he flips the GoPro, GoPro around and says, I'm going solo. And, and then it's telling the camera like, 
and then has graphics on it that's saying like how far up on the course record he is. And then he takes the camera home with him and shows his dinner and talk like, dude, it would be amazing. And I know that that's, that's why I have like the living I have is because I'm, I'm able to do that. But I wish that I wish that the kind of content that I create could be at the very front of some of these huge races. And it would be so exciting and it would build the community uh, of cycling, I think more here in America. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if once we, once we get these guys to make more content, cause they always just have a filmer, but is there a way we can have GoPros on their bikes? Like the top 10 have a front and rear and do like a battery pack. Like, an, I mean, yes, it's gonna be heavier, but dude, if we had six hours of footage from the all top 10 guys, then someone like GCN could come in and stitch all that together and make like a really captivating race out of it. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, your own content, YouTube, it's been pretty good to you? It's been crazy, the, the journey of this, you know, um, but also like how much I've, I've tried to, I don't wanna say innovate, but like I, I have not done the same thing my whole YouTube career. Like I started in one genre and just kept moving to, to new genres um, to try to try to keep it interesting. And that what's been really cool is that that's like pushed me into a whole new level of humanity. Like doing some of this stuff, dude, as a cat three road racer, you know, like right here, I'm in Spain and this woman's just staring at me, right? Like, like that's such a, so far from what I thought could ever be the case. But if you just keep trying to make new content, tell new stories, you go down this path where, you know, you start doing things that are way outside your comfort zone. And that's a good story. I'm caked. Like that was miserable. But the whole time I'm thinking, this is going to be such a good shot. <laughs> and so then I, I'm having so much fun capturing all this, this crazy stories. But at a certain point, how do you, where do you go from there? Like, it's just a, a, an escalator to space. And I, you know, he heading to Bolivia uh, in two days to go up to 18,200 feet. It's like the highest accessible point by bike. Once we do that, what else are we, we literally can't go any higher. You know, I'm gonna put my bike on my back and go up to Everest just to, like it. And then this, the harder the thing gets, it, it doesn't scale in the way this story is told. So, you know, how do you tell someone what it feels like at 18,000 feet? Like you just, it's not, it doesn't look cold, doesn't look hot. It, there's no way to see elevation, right? And so then how do you keep telling these stories? And it's difficult. I'm, I'm finding it difficult to continue to tell uh, captivating stories. But with that said, I just posted a video about Colorado and a lot of the comments were like, I like this better than your impossible routes because this is just fun and light and it's, it's, you know, you're making jokes and it's like, I want to see more of this. But to me, it's like, well, how many times can I do kind of the same exact thing over and over and over again? But if, if you want YouTube success, you kind of have to do that. 
but I don't want to do that. So like with you, you switched from sort of a, cause like for a while I felt like you didn't have, you didn't know who you were on YouTube. Like you just were seeing what other people were doing and kind of trying to replicate that with sort of your own style. Um, but there wasn't, you know, we had to talk about this last, last year, like there wasn't a reason I had to watch one of your videos. If it was on, it was cool, whatever. I mean, it was, it was good production. You're putting a lot of energy into it, but there wasn't this thing where like, I gotta watch this. And then, and you floundered for like years. And I even said like, dude, it's so wild because for the most part with business, just keep doing what you're doing and you'll have success. But your channel views never grew. And it's like, well, I don't understand what's happening. Like this seems so weird. Your content's better. You're, you're telling good stories, but yeah. So then you had to make a decision of like, well, what do I, what am I supposed to do here? And then you made this total pivot into a different direction, but now you're providing value with like the podcast and the way you edit. And it's sort of like, there's now a real reason and value to watch what you're doing. And you, you found that through. I found that through a chat, through a long chat with you. I'm not going to turn this into a Tyler Pierce loving, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been pretty open about this in the past that, you know, you were very foolishly positive, but in a, in a sort of critical way, which is the kick up the ass I needed. And look, there's a whole other backstory to why YouTube was YouTube for me. It was never a priority. It was just a thing that ran in the background. The priority was obviously the team sort of stuff and it treaded water. I, I would argue that I wasn't telling great stories. It was a very, if I felt like making a video that was related to something, I'd do it and there was no other plan. And you could sense that. You could sense that in the, in the stuff I was doing. There was a couple of good, good bits and pieces in there for sure. But it wasn't really until... Yeah, there was a lot of push factors from the team, obviously financially, the shit show that that ended up. And your words ringing in my ears of just being like, no, you're not bad at this. Like, just friggin' concentrate on it. Yeah, but it's like you're your same amount, you, maybe even that you're working less hard, but just in a different way. And then it had a lot of success. And, um, and so it's, it's really cool to see, but like that's, that's what you got to sort of find your niche and find your thing. Um, and I think, unfortunately for me, is that my thing is so physically taxing, right? Like I saw a thing where like, okay, well, I'm going to do something that no one else wants to do. No one else can do. No one else can film it the way. Like, like there's no competition in this space that I'm in because no one wants to be there, right? And so it's, uh, it's neat, but man, it gets really, really difficult. And so then I'm sort of at crossroads of like, well, how many impossible routes can I really do? Because now it's sort of like, it's the same story over and over and over. I can't race at the front of gravel races because who can, right? Like when people are like, dude, you're not very good. You suck. And it's like, okay, but who, who doesn't suck? Who isn't? Like Keegan wins everything. Okay. And, and there's like, maybe three or four people that are winning the races, everyone else. Uh, so, I mean, okay. So then unless there's like a, 
a, a bigger amateur division that opens up in gravel. Um, but then it's sort of like, well, wait, you're, you're kind of a full-time bike racer. I mean, this is sort of, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a bike racer, but I, this is sort of my job is making content. I get to ride bikes a lot. And then it's like, so, but you're just like sandbagging. You're not racing like the pros. Okay, yeah, but the pros are super pro now. Mm. And so they're professional athletes. You're uh, a professional content creator. It's very different. Yeah. So, so then I, I almost feel like I might revert back a little bit towards um, the lighter content, like reviews, uh, but in a better way. Like I want to do like helmet shootouts, talk about like 15 different helmets or, or glasses or or do something where I can offer some expertise. Because like before when I did that, I didn't have enough history in the sport to really give any context. Like I was just talking on my ass, but now I feel like I have a good level of, of experience to be able to explain why someone would want to run a one by or a two by, or just like, I don't, I don't need to like get all into this is what I promote, but I can explain the differences and, and the experience that I've had and maybe turn back towards like, information that people ha want value of all right well let's let's test you then all right so the the lineup of canyon bikes that you've ridden in the last four or five years so what have we got we we started with the ultimate rim break i think yep. thoughts impressions on that carry that through so that versus maybe your your aeroad your current aeroad versus the new little rig that you've been running around the last few weeks like what are you what are you seeing in those in those three like what what's your favorite bike well uh it's hard to say because like i ride i ride them all and so then this is where i think i could i've always wanted to do this but like if if you had one bike what bike would that be and i wanted to do like all these tests where i ran did the same course but on every bike like a time trial bike all the way down to a full suspension downhill. And like, they would be kind of cool. Cause like you'd be doing a single track on a time trial bike, you know, but, and then I think it's no surprise. It would fall into some sort of all road, you know, have like a gravel frame and two sets of wheels. I think for the most, most people, like that's just going to be totally fine. And I know people want to talk about these super bikes and how awesome they are. And they are, they're great, but the margins are so small. And so what do you want to get like the experience of enjoying bikes to me is a almost a mountain bike, you know, but with drop bars and, and like it's, it's light and it's performancey because then you can do so much. And I know that you're not totally in the gravel scene. I, and I don't, maybe a lot of the gravel roads where you're, maybe they're just not, they're not accessible. But if I had a week with you to take you on some adventures, I think it would just change how you look at, at riding altogether and how fun it is to never see a car, to see places that no one often sees. Um, you're just in the woods and it's so cool. It's so fun. So like, anyways, uh, the bike that I would, promote is like a $3,000 to $4,000 gravel bike and have two sets of wheels. So you could have a road set and, and a, and a, and a knobby. Um, 
because I've gotten to ride every one of the bikes. You, you jumped on um, the Ultimate that you have. Yeah. That's Shimano. So you're like a week into riding a bit of Shimano. For, and how, it's been like four or five years. So I have all my special snowflake stuff that I, because I want a bike to be unique. And I don't know why everyone's so like, I'm not going to upgrade my bike. It's gonna come out of the box and I'm gonna leave it that way. I'm just gonna replace the parts. But my bikes are like Frankenstein bikes. Like I have a mountain bike derailleur on my Aero Road. I have a one by 54 to 11.52. And then people are just like, stupid, <laughs> you know, it's so dumb. Uh, but one, I love it. I love how simple the SRAM one by is. It's click down on that left side, click up on the right side. That's it. Uh, I also just like not having to think about, you know, shifting the front derailleur and, and cross chaining and all that. It's just like, it's a, okay, like a fixie. Have you ridden fixies? There's a, a sense of, a whole different sense of freedom that you don't have to think about brakes or shifting or anything. I mean, the bike is like trying to actively kill you all the time, but it's, it's actually a really cool feeling when you strip away a lot of those, those things you're thinking about. Um, and so then, yeah, so we got this new bike out of the box. It's, it's their, it's, I think it's like an $11,000 bike on their website. And I just didn't have time to put all my stuff cause I can't swap it out. Like it just cause the Shimano thing. Uh, so my impressions are that the shifting works well, but not any way different than SRAM really. Like I, I wouldn't say, oh my God, this is, this shift's so amazing. I will say that my unfamiliarity with it causes a lot of dislike. But you said that on that first ride, you were like, what's my, what's this hand doing over here? Well, I kept shifting the big ring yeah. on accident, yeah. you know, and that's just like whatever. But then the, the right side, it's like the same button. And so then I kept shifting down and up instead of down. And, uh, and then that was like, whatever. And then now you have to start thinking about the big ring. So when you're doing like undulating hills, you know, now you got to be in the right gear and then downshift and then you spin. I will, I will argue like, cause you're running a super silly, it's like a 50, 34 front chain ring. Like it's tiny. I would argue that if you move, cause I'm running the 5440 and a 1134 on the back, that's, it's much better for that because climbing, you are staying pretty much in the, the 40 front tooth and you've got all this room to move at the back up to a 30. Cause I noticed that yesterday when you were like putting the power down, coming up that second last climb and you were kind of getting out of the saddle and you were pretty low on the block and you're like, and I was looking at it going, He's either going to shift again and it's going to be a sloppy change. So I'm going to back off you a bit or you're going to realize it and put it in the big ring and there'll be that moment where you try and get over the gear kind of thing. That, yeah. And meanwhile, I'm just sitting in the 40, like going, I'm not moving from here. I'm pretty comfortable. So the, yeah, again, it's, it's learning thing. Interesting to see though that you didn't have any, even the brakes, you didn't find the brake modulation happy either way. No? Okay. I I like what I like, dude. I like oval. I like one by. I, I will say though, um, it feels super efficient. So maybe my my one by setup, um, 
I don't know, you know, it's a brand new bike. So like every bearing chain, everything is like, maybe it's just going to feel that way. Uh, but it, it, the bike feels really, really good. Um, very snappy and, and quick, but I just, I just like, uh, also then with SRAM, if for whatever reason, like you could bring a spare battery, you can't with Shimano. I don't like the plug-in thing. Like SRAM, especially adventure stuff, I just have an extra SRAM battery with me. So in case something happens and one dies, but Shimano, if you, you die, it, I, see, I feel like that's where you'll eventually always just go back to SRAM because the, the, once you start getting into the off-road, the compatibility stuff that you've, you've worked up over years, that you're not going to back out of that. You're so far down that ecosystem now to have this other bike. I mean, the performance of the, of the Shimano road bike would have to probably be so much better than you've ever had on a SRAM bike for you to make that leap. It's like you're not going to buy an Android phone just for your really important calls. Like well, and that's what I guess I don't understand. It's like what, so one, I can't, I can't have the gear range that I want with the, this setup because you run a 5440, but what's in your rear? 1134. And the derailleur, the derailleur gets that 34. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually the gear ratio I've been dreaming about like for, for where I live and I was I was slightly concerned coming here running that bigger front chain ring but I've had no problems now I haven't tried to go up Big Creek Jeez, this is niche conversation but yeah I haven't gone up like the horrific stuff around here which I may need to change out of but yeah okay but so that that right there is if you have an issue at all the one by setup that I have fixes all of it because I can run a 52 in the rear and an 11. So then, and even if I, I think you could even go a SRAM has like a 10 52, I believe, but e either way, like I can climb up walls and I can still run a crit, uh, without having to think about it and change it at all. But I live so much more like the 54 where I live at home, I am allowed to, to ride so much more of my life in a more efficient part of the cassette. And so, yeah, the, the, tr the extreme trade-off of coming here is sort of the 10%. So what do you think about this place? Uh, you obviously don't like the heat, and you've been coming here for a while. But, like, the, we, we, you've done a bunch of the normal roads. Like, I took you up Bayshore, Yosemite. Um, you know, you did the, the Lodge Road and, and Alder and that sort of stuff. How does it... How do the roads here compare to? It's sick. I love it. I absolutely love it. Like the the variation in terrain is is wild. Like there's nothing like being able to climb up to like sp spaceship moonscape areas like we did the other day. And then in this and okay, the one thing that I thought this place was missing was like a a bit of competitive edge, a bit of like the fast group ridey stuff. But you linked me up with the guys here, the Velo Kings guys, uh, Mark, and like you got that as well. So that's that pumpkin spice, whatever we call it, right? Pumpkin yeah. Valley Death Ride. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Which that course really, like it's very hard to, uh, to get away. It, no matter how strong you think you are, um, you know, 
it's fun. Uh, I wish that we had more. I wish we had more people, you know, uh, making it harder. But um, I think a lot of times people don't even think about the Central Valley as a destination whatsoever. But, dude, the riding here is just phenomenal. Like, how often can you find, like, we have beyond category climbs out my door everywhere. You could do, like, 15 of them. So YouTube's been pretty good to you, but, like, how do, how do you... I would say you're probably one of the top cycling YouTubers in the world. Like, how does that work financially for you? Which is crazy because I don't really make anything off of off YouTube, dude. Like, the ad revenue is just peanuts. And I, I've said this somewhere before, but someone said, so, like, uh, you make around, what, like, 20 grand a month off ad revenue? I was like, bro, do you... I wouldn't be talking to you if I was making 20 grand a month off ad revenue, man. Like I'd, I'd, I'd just be in Hawaii. Like I, I'd have already retired. And I know that you, you make more than I do. Charles makes the most out of anyone with like the, such a small following. So it kind of depends on uh, how you structure it. And unfortunately I do high quality content not very often and YouTube does not like that. And so there's just no money in YouTube unless I am going to upload every single day. Um, and when I do that, because I've done that in December, the last three years, my views just, they just tailor off. All throughout the whole year, it's like the first one is good, it's like 60,000, by the last one it's 20,000. And, and I'm putting in an insane amount of work but I haven't built that thing where people want to watch me every day. Uh, they want to just watch this like really high, good production like every once in a while. So then I, um, I don't make anything off of YouTube. Uh, my range is between $700 a month up to like 3000 a month. Like 3000 would be like a really, really good month. And people were like, oh, you're making $3,000 off of video. Bro, when you break it down by hourly wage, I'm making 14 cents an hour. So, you know, so then I have to find a different way to do that. And the other way is to do ad reads. Uh, and there's a very well paved path there now where a lot of brands, you'll get in with these like media companies and they represent like a ton of different companies and it's an algorithm. Your last five videos have gotten this many, so here's what we'll pay you to have this ad read in the first, you know, 30 of your video. And I think with podcasts uh, or just like talking heads, very applicable, you know? You could say, I really do like ride bikes clothing, and this hat is amazing. It's a uh, cyan blue. Get more. Code whatever back to this that doesn't really interrupt you're just like whatever okay but when i have crafted this story of me jeremiah and andrew going through washington and we're about to go camping and it's just like this build of emotion i can't right then when the emotion is high take you away because then you might not come back it's going to ruin the way you feel. And, and to me, I think what I have this like weird 
sense of uh of what the story feels like so i think a lot of times people when they make content they just want to see themselves and they're like well if my face is here it's that's great it's amazing uh but i have a an ability to separate myself and i look at me as a character and i'm an editor and and that person on the screen is totally not me so i can make myself look stupid because if that's funny and it lends the story whatever i don't care showing me fail because that's a good story but so i can't interrupt myself with these ad reads and even if i did do them they don't pay that much so then that means that you still have to make a ton of videos so then i have like salary and i have gotten myself into probably one of the most sought after ways to make money in this industry is you just pay me monthly or quarterly and i'm just going to do what i'm doing so an ambassador type yeah thing with a brand okay but like not hey you got to do this this and this and it's just as long as you keep making the content the way you're doing it we we will support that and i have like a handful of companies that have been with me for a long time um but man if i if i lost even one of them it's like my my annual income is like across like four <laughs> sources and so one of those leaving is is a big big deal and then how do you how do you replace it and yeah yeah so it's uh it's been good but i i'm like on this down downstream where i'm not making more money but i'm expected to make better content which costs more money and is more time and so you know not to like complain but like try to find how do how do i find a way to have a revenue source that doesn't require me to put in 200 hours into to a video how does the impossible route fit into that because obviously it ends up on your channel so it's, you know, it's I, I mean, I, I don't know how the whole sort of system of it works, but I assume that this is potentially outside those agreements that you, because yeah, so it's a huge expense, so, I'd totally. imagine. So um, I, what I've tried to do is separate Ride Bikes Racing, The Vegan Cyclist, and Impossible Route. Those are three different brands. And because a lot of times a brand's like, well, we'll give you support but we want to be in, in the impossible route. And it's like, but that, that's a totally different thing. Uh, and so, so I try to, to separate that a little bit. Um, but the impossible route runs on its own sponsorships. And sh I should have put that on its own channel from jump. I think that the impossible route might be further along if that had happened. Um, but obviously, like I didn't know. And then you don't want to put all this time, like the very first one I did, Death Valley, uh, Hawaii was the first one, but the first one we got contracted for, you know, we had gotten about 110 grand to make four episodes. If I put this on its own channel and it gets 700 views, that is an uncomfortable conversation to the people that put, put that money in. It was safer, really. To, yeah, we, yeah, well, it was, I, I could guarantee some level of success. So, so I put it on my own channel and we got 110 grand to do four episodes. Now, that might sound insane. If we had taken that whole budget and done 
a split payroll between Jeremiah and I, that would still be undervaluing our time. But we didn't get any of that money. All that money went into travel and videographers, uh, all, all the hard things. Like my, my RV in Death Valley got completely destroyed. You know, there was like a $3,000 fuel bill. I, I mean, it's just insane. Uh, France cost us $45,000. That's just hard costs. So then, you know, how do we, how do we start making money? And uh, Outside TV has bought season one and season two. Uh, not like for a crazy amount of money, but that was beyond the budget. So that's what Jeremiah and I have split. And so like, you know, Jeremiah and I have made maybe 15 grand a year. How many, how many, how many a year do you do? Season one was four, season two was four. Season three, it, you know, like probably gonna be three. It's just, it's so much. It's so difficult. Such a small budget. Like if you'd gone to, to Netflix or something and said, right, we're gonna, in fact, I'm sure you've tried this, but you go to Netflix and say, well, hey, hey look at this, this, this movie that I've made. Um, how much, like, <laughs> here's the budget that we had for, for that. They would laugh at you, given I'm sure the, the, the scale of the budget that they would normally work with. Which, which I feel like is a huge selling point, but I can't, why, why can't a media house go, wait, we've been spending millions per piece of content and this guy did it for 20 grand, 30 grand, and it's better than what. See, this is why we needed Unchained. I said this to you the other day. This is why we needed Unchained to be a success. All of us did. Because, you know, you could then go to Netflix and be like, do you remember that 25 million you spent on that cycling documentary that ranked number three across the globe? Well, I do this shit and here's what it costs. They would be friggin' bending over at that point. Anyway, side rant. No, I mean, that's, it's like, how, how can I get the same kind of money that other people are getting? I mean, I've, I've some of the like Rafa, uh, EF education Rafa videos, I mean, they were like a hundred grand a pop. Um, I've talked to other filmmakers in the space. They'd have had 250 to $500,000 budgets to make a film that never streamed. It was just the film festivals. And so a hundred people saw this. How do I get into a, a, a situation where someone's willing to spend that kind of money, make that a kind of investment? Um, but I think that I haven't done a good job of like putting a barrier on the content. So it's been so accessible and which is cool, but like, that's not where the money is. The money is, is putting a paywall or making it like you have to go here to, to see it, which I pitched to outside. I said like, dude, let's just make it exclusive on outside. Um, but man, some of these big companies, it's just, it, it, there's so much red tape to jump through and I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it is when someone sees these and go, wow, this is amazing. Why, why is there not the next step of going, okay, we'll, we'll throw a bunch of money at you. Um, which whatever, look to me, money's not that big of a deal. Like the experience that I've had doing this stuff is so amazing. Uh, and maybe if I had gotten a bunch of money, then it would change the content. Yeah, 
Like, could you imagine getting a couple million dollars and putting together something that sucked? Like, what kind of anxiety you would have at night? Like, so I have pretty low pressure. I mean, I feel, I feel like I, I perform really well with, with the stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, it's been, look, it's been really good for Canyon and any, any, uh, any brand that's been a part of it. Um, but it's such a niche thing where we're taking a quarter, if not half of the North American Canyon marketing budget. That's a lot. So could, could I, should I have gotten into a different sport that's more mainstream? And then we could get like a little bit of Honda, Ford, Jeep, whatever. I, yes, is the answer. You're in completely, we all are in completely the wrong spot. Those motorbikes you've got outside, like there's a lot more money spinning around in that stuff. So where are you, where are you headed next? I know you mentioned that, but what's, what is the, the next impossible route? We've already actually d- did one that I haven't even started editing, which is we did Belgian waffle. We raced Belgian waffle. Then we rode our bikes up the coast to, uh, to Sea Otter. It was like 700 something miles in seven days. It was awesome. That's kind of episode one of season three, but we hadn't gotten funding for it. So we sort of just did something low cost. And uh, anyways, so then this one, we are going to La Paz, La Paz, Bolivia, and we're going to ride the death road. That's like this trade route over the Andes. Okay, the death ride. Good. Death road has no guardrails. It's like a super, I mean, if you just look it up, it's insane. And then there's a ski resort, an abandoned ski resort or ski lift off this gravel road that goes up to 18,200 feet. So it's like the highest accessible point in the world by bike. I mean, I guess you could put your bike on your back and climb higher, but like to ride uh, along this route, it's like one of the highest towns in the world or is the highest town in the world. Like at like 16,500 feet or 17,000 I mean, these people just live there. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be a three-day ride. And, like, each day has 20,000 to 25,000 feet of climbing in it. Um, but the elevation is just elevation, going to be, mate. It's gonna be insane. Count me out. <laughs> Count me out for and that And that's one. when we did Colorado. Uh, we did all the peaks in Telluride. And that was between eight and 13,000. And that was by far the hardest impossible route I had done. Because that's my favorite. That's interesting you said that. Oh. That's actually my favorite, like, movie slash whatever. It, it, I mean, it came out, it was beautiful. It came out good, but it was physically the most difficult because you can't negotiate with elevation. You can't just say, hey, man, suck it up, be tough. Your body just... And then I've never been past 14, so I have no idea what's going to happen. Insert, I, insert footage of Chris looking out yesterday here. <laughs> you can't cheat elevation. You're riding these impossible routes, bulk distance, bulk time in the saddle, et cetera, et cetera. And I get the sense that you sort of realized you're not half bad at this, just sitting on a saddle for days and days and days. Enter the ultra stuff. Now, I'm really interested about this because... I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you on it, all right? From an outsider looking in, the achievements are in, in, in terms of the pure difficulty of, of everything seem incredible. But there's this big, big but behind it. Sounds a bit odd, but you know what I mean. 
But the competition, let's face it, is pretty damn small, mate. Right? So how are you... Because I think about this, I'm like, you are pushing yourself to the ends of the earth in terms of your athletic ability to beat one other guy? This most recent one was super frustrating uh, because there was 10 people registered. There was a bunch of heat. One guy showed up. But I'm already there. I've already put in all the money. Like, this is in a performance contract. Like, I can't not do this. But now how, how prestigious is this? Is this even a race? Or is this just like an adventure. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's really, I don't, I, I, I don't know where that sits with me right now. Because like when I did it the first time, um, I, I kind of came to the start line being like, I'm, as long as I don't crash, like the competition here is just years. It's, it's as if you started gravel racing in 2014. But with today's knowledge, you would just dominate because it, you're kind of ahead of the time. That's how it is with ultra road is that most of these people and most of the events, they're, they're more towards your casual rider that's looking for a really big life achievement. And so they're showing up not to race. Racing isn't, they wouldn't even call it a race. It's just they're going to try to do something really cool uh, for themselves. So a lot of times it's like baggy jerseys and, and clapped out road bikes. And then I, I show up on two $10,000 speed machines, you know, like skin suit, like dialed team. I mean, I am just the douchiest of douches. Now, if I didn't win, we'd have a real big problem. Okay. But so uh, I... I I really fight between, okay, yes, the competition isn't very stout. And um, that doesn't make it feel very prestigious. And like, yes, are there other guys that could blow me out of the water? Sure. But did they show up? They did not. And so, and it's not like a crit where if you show up to crit national championships and one other guy is there like, okay, what, what is happening? Because you're definitely going to finish. But to do 502 miles and 38,000 feet of climbing in 110 degree weather, it doesn't matter how fit you are, whatever. Like there's so many variables and just finishing it is very, very difficult to do. But I don't wanna be the ultra distance national champion who finished the race. Like I wanna, I wanna race. And, and that's what I like about the 24 hour to 36 hour window, cause then, like, okay, I could go do Paris, Brest, Paris or whatever, or like there's a couple other uh, Badlands, Tour Divide. I mean, there's other things, Race Across America, but these are all like 2,000 plus miles. And that gets into a totally different sport where they're like, well, you say you're the ultra distance. Why aren't you doing Tour Divide? Well, dude, Tour Divide's like 10 days, fully self-supported, and you need to learn how to like cook. Yeah, it, it's it's a totally different thing, um, and to me, that's not a whole lot of fun because you're not it's it's not a race anymore. I mean, in the way of like, are you going fast? You can't. Are you? It's like, can you 
who can be bored the longest? It's who, no, it's who can avoid sleep the longest. Those, those events have yeah, turned yeah. into just pure sleep deprivation. Who, who's not going to lie down? Like, whereas, you know, you're still operating, I think, in that window of, like, athletic achievement rather than... Yeah, so in Oregon, I did 200... I averaged, raw average, 240 watts for 17 hours, the first 17 hours. Like, that was... And the, the time trial bike actually was, like, glitching out with the power meter, so it kept cutting out, so maybe even did more. But uh, that, to me, was fun. Like, we are on the gas. If you're doing something five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days, you just can't be on the gas. And so then... And then the sleep thing... Like, where is this on healthy? And someone had, someone had commented, and they were like, on the Oregon thing, they're like, this isn't healthy. Well, 32 hours, I mean, isn't, you wouldn't want to do that all the time. But it's, I felt like I actually improved my physical form after that race, like my body soaked in that stress. You go and you do an eight-day race, and like the guy who won Badlands, I think his ride time was like 104 hours and he slept for two hours. That, that is bad for your brain. And so unless we're going to start saying, okay, let's just do all the drugs and, and let's, let's uh, do some meth and stay up, you know, uh, and, and, and be just like our testosterone's through the roof so that we can, okay, that would make that healthier, I guess. But then like long-term, like how bad is that on your body? And, and what does that do with your, your genetics when you're just, yeah. So anyway. So my, my, my take on this is I, I hate, I hate the narrative of, oh, well, he won, but so-and-so didn't turn up. I hate that. We used to get it in the team. Oh, this team weren't there. So no wonder Nero won. I, it just used to drive me nuts because half the battle is being on the start line. And, you know, that's, that is essentially a, a part of the race. So with, with your event, I don't have any issue with uh, – not that you should care, but, like, I don't have any issue with the, the, the no people turning up. For your own motivation, it must be just a total mind wreck when you're out there. Like, because obviously you need – what are you, you going to be thinking about stuff for hours and hours and hours? And a lot of the thing, like, if you're in a bike race – that great motivation comes from looking over your shoulder and being, where is he? Where is he? So it's almost kind of adds to the achievement from my perspective about what you're doing. And then, but I do think what will happen, right? I swear by it. I absolutely swear by this. A few people are going to see your video and they're going to go, you know what? Tyler bloke. I'm going to turn up next year and I am going to whip his ass. And all of a sudden, we're going to have a race. Look, which I was all for. So people, if you don't know me, then you just, you just assume I'm going to be this like narcissistic uh, hype man that only wants to make myself look good regardless. Like I want to fake it, which in, on social media, obviously, dude, there's so much faking. That is so opposite of me that I would much rather get a hundredth out of 10,000 than win with one other person. Because to me, I want, I want to know where I really stack up. I, 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 
come from motocross where a podium is three, not 15. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I understand the extended podiums of, of five is whatever, sometimes six, but what, like, I want to race. I want to feel that race regardless if I win or lose. Um, so when people see that, they're like, ah, oh, he's just, he just wants to have this like clout. But obviously I want some level of success and I've been trying every single discipline of cycling. And so then I find this thing. And, and so the first one, I honestly thought, okay, this is going to get a bunch of people to, to do this event, to do this style of racing. And I had a bunch of people comment and tag and say like, oh, I'm, I'm taking this championship next year. This isn't hard. I'm coming. And I was welcoming it. There was a, like a 22 year old kid who had kept posting like that I'm holding on to his jersey. And I was like, bro, this is sick. I would love for you to show up. Didn't show up. Now, there is this level of like, it is the most elitism discipline of cycling because money offers so much. Now, when you are 28 hours into the ride, it's three in the morning and you're shitting blood. Who cares about what bikes you have and what crew you have? Like it's, it's like gnarly. But the guy that I was racing against in Oregon had a station wagon, one bike, his wife and his two kids. That was his crew. That was his setup. I had a absolute speed machine for a time trial bike, the lightest road bike I could possibly have, skin suit, and a crew of people that are so well-oiled that I was getting bottle hand-ups. We had a $250,000 Sprinter van that had all the, like, I had every possible thing that I needed. And so all I had to do was think about just ride my bike. This other guy had so many other things to worry about and, and then got lost. So, I mean, he, he did, you know, like I had a team that's like able to do, to help me out so much. So then if you want to compete in open ultra, which it's a really, I, 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 I want to try to explain how fucking cool this sport is. When do you get to race side by side with your friends and family? Like you don't ever have friends come. Would you ever have a friend come watch you at a road race? Like you're never even going to ask someone. You're, you're, yeah. Okay. And, and if you ask your family, that's a, that's a big ask. Hey, can you watch me come through the feed zone twice in four hours? And, and so there's no feeling of like when you win, they weren't on your bike with you. But in ultra, that's how it is. And it's, it's something that hasn't been documented well enough, but your crew and you have this bond where it's like, I'm just an extension of this team. And like without the right crew, you're not, you're not winning. And so that feeling of like, I'm racing with my wife, like she's out the window. You know what I mean? She's doing the social. She's like in my ear on the, on the radios. Like that is absolutely something that you don't get anywhere else and it's so cool so then when i get done with this me and my wife's relationship is so much stronger because we did a thing together and now she's getting to see what it is that i spend all my time doing 
And then she gets like so soccer mom about it where my wife's just so gentle and so sweet. But then she's like, you're, you're 20 minutes down off the record. What are you doing? Like go harder. And, and then like, it's 24 hours in and I'm like, Hey, I just need to, I just need to sit down. And she's like, no, no, like keep going. And it's like, uh, you know, but she's like, so, uh, gets in the moment of like, no, we're winning this together. And that's, what's so, so cool. But like leaning into it was something I, I, I really battled with. Do I even say I won a national championship? Because what is a national championship, right? And then I, I really fell down this like rabbit hole of like it, having a championship is just a bunch of people agreeing that this one event is special, right? And then we're gonna give you something special. And you can kind of see it in the gravel scene where like three different places were called the worlds. But like, it, is this the world championship? So who sanctions the ultras? Is it? Is it? Uh, WUCA. Okay. So World Ultra Cycling Association, um, which they, they are, to their credit, have like really tried to um, increase their prestige. So they've been doing a lot. They do a lot in Europe. So um, in America, it's like there's all this drama between WUCA and RAM. Race Across America wants to be the Iron Man of America. But they don't care about championships. They don't care about racing at all. They're very just like, pay us money to ride your bike on a course that's not marked or anything like, like it's such a good deal. I, uh, you know, ride across America by yourself, self-supported with your team, spend thousands and thousands of dollars to do this. And then just give us a cut of it. Wuka is a little more like proper racing. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, so it's sanctioned through them. Um, and in technically I'm the North American champion cause they have the North America and then and they have the Europe. Um, so it's funny cause it's like stars and stripes, but how do the Canadians feel about that or, or Mexico, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like whatever, uh, you know, but it's just, um, it's a sport. I, I hope that gets bigger. I hope that people get more involved with it. But again, you know, often you need multiple bikes, you need a solid crew. Sometimes you need multiple vehicles, uh, to leapfrog and, um, but man, I, w- I want to see 15, 20, 30, 100 people show up. That would be so amazing. I would love to get smashed and embarrassed because I know that then that was where I really like stacked up. Yep. I understand. Yeah. You're a racer at the end of the day. I don't think. And there's, you, de- you feel more, you, you gain more from competition a lot of the time than just pure achievement the competition is what i strive for you, okay on wednesday we did this right i got fourth out of four right i mean there was a couple other guys but like immediately first lap like it's us four and i had more fun doing that than i have had almost all year just because there was real competition we were we were bad just bashing each yeah, other yeah. yeah and it was it yeah. was so so fun so i don't i don't care to win but like um i feel that i have a gift for ultra 
in 24 to 36 hours. I feel like I can put out a lot of power for 24 hours. Um, I feel like I naturally have a hard time sleeping. And so like night riding to me is great. I love it. Uh, and everything I've ever done that I've won has been 12 plus hours. I guess Kaim to Kaiser was, was eight, but like most of the stuff, it's, it's all overnight through the night, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I tattooed it on my arm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I, I, I have these bands on my arm and they're, they're moments in my life that have forked my life in a different direction. So I have the Hawaii impossible route, uh, which, which took me from just a casual rider to doing something no one else had ever done before. And that was like an addictive feeling. Then I did Death Valley, which seven days of, of 12 hours a day of riding is just like unbelievable than the film. And I broke my leg in a talkable parking lot, like totally different life path. And so then when I did this in Nevada, I, I was like, do I even wear the jersey? Do I even say it? And, and, and my thought process on it was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace this in hopes that it makes me an athlete. Right, like if I don't say I won a national championship, then in my head, I'm not really a national champion. And then like, maybe I don't, like I, I was hoping I was gonna take this next leap from just content creator who rides bikes to actually an athlete. And um, I don't know. What do you think? Cause you guys were talking shit when I, we rode on Saturday, if I was gonna come rolling up in the Jersey or not. And so do I get to wear it? Is it douchey to wear it? Would you wear it? No. Oh. It's, it's a cool jersey though. I'm actually looking at it behind you at the moment. I wouldn't race in it. I wouldn't go and race a crit in it. I wouldn't go and do a road race in the, the Stars and Stripes. Well, you, can't, you technically can't. You know what I mean? Uh, so the only, if you're going by road race rules, or like the unwritten rules. I can only wear it in 500 plus mile races, which I do one of those a year, which is national championships. Like I'm not gonna do multiple 500 mile races. Like it's just like, that's too much. Uh, and so it, it's kind of like. I, look, my whole thing with this is like, it's so easy to give you shit for this. It's like the easiest, it's like the low hanging fruit to give you shit. But I don't wanna go do this. You, you took me on a bike ride the other day. I softed out after like five or six hours. I'm, I don't want to do this. I'm bored with this. Like, and so to take that to the next step and be like, yeah, you're going to go put me on an ultra distance bike ride. I'm completely out. So ultimately, ultimately, I would love to see you racing. That's the only thing. I mean, the achievement, the athletic achievement about it is, is bloody amazing but it's that really annoying thing that there's just not people turning up to race you. And when they do, they don't inspire uh, confidence. Yes. You know, that's like, <laughs> that's not that, fear. That, yeah. Um, and yeah, so. You, you mentioned just, just quickly, um, obviously having your family out on the road with you during that. It's, uh, 
it's pretty obvious from anyone who follows you on any kind of social media that it plays a big role in your whole life, of course, obviously. But, I mean, have you, have you struggled with it a little bit in terms of, like, how much the family should be involved in the social media stuff? Or, like, is it, is it still a big inspiration for you? Yeah, so the family balance is, you know, a question I always get. And so, uh, okay, in 2021, or right after COVID, uh, I, I made more money than I had ever made. The, the brand deals were just, I literally thought people were making typos. I'm like, there's no possible way that this is, this is real. And I ended up becoming the unhappiest I had ever been, which is such a cliche thing to say, but like, oh, I made a bunch of money and I was sad. But I was working too much. I was spending too much time away from the family. And what I did was I justified, well, you, well babe, you're cashing the checks. You're living a great life. Like we should all be happy that I'm working so hard to provide this way. But then I just wasn't around enough. And then my wife had told me one time, I said, I, I was gone for a big trip and I came back and I was like searching for compliments. And I said like, so how, how stoked are you to see me, to have me home? And she was like, well, to be honest, it's not really any different than when you're not here. I was like, ooh, <laughs> burn. And so then uh, towards the end of last year, my daughter's like five and that, period in her life is so golden like my son the more he gets older the the more he ages the better a relationship becomes um but with her i feel like dude I, i'll never be able to buy this time back and so so anyways going into ultra distance nationals 2022 i had asked my wife because i was at like probably the lowest point of our relationship we had been at in in 18 years where it just, I felt like we were roommates. She was totally living a life un, unattached to me uh, and it sucked. So then I said, I want you to come and be a part of this. And when I say, hey, can you come be a part of a 30 hour bike race? No, <laughs> you know, no one wants to do that. And I kind of had to convince her a little bit and I, and, she wasn't thinking it was going to be very fun, but that event with her by my side totally changed our relationship. She saw what it was that I was doing and how cool it was. And she kind of became like a part of the team, um, literally became a part of the team. But when we went, we won together, she felt like, you know, we did this thing together and shortly after our relationship had just like spiked and just like how connected we were. And I really thought like, Oh my God, like I, I, this is how our, our relationship be should, should be every day. And so then I was like, I, I want to put more time into this. I want to make sure that I have a wife for the rest of my life. And I felt way more happiness around that, even though that event, I didn't get paid. Like I didn't really have any sponsors for it. Like we, we spent a lot of money to do that but I was so much happier. So then this year in 2023, uh, I've worked very little. I haven't traveled a whole lot and I've just been full gas with the family and putting so much time into my daughter and my son and my wife. And even though I've made probably the least amount of money, 
that I have had have done in the last five years. And the stress and anxiety of like the warehouse and the business and the content is maximum. It doesn't feel stressful because I have this, I have this support crew or like, how do I say it? Like the things you can't measure are all time. My relationship with my wife, my marriage with my wife could not be better, but you can't really measure that. I can't say, well, my marriage FTP is 420, but if I could, the measurement of that is off the charts. My relationship with my daughter, relationship with my son, like it's just, my, I'm the healthiest I've ever been. Like I put on some weight, um, which feels really good. My wife, like, she's like, oh, you've kind of like beefed up and I like it. You don't feel so scrawny. And so everything I can't measure is the best it's ever been. And all the things I can measure are probably the worst it's been, but it doesn't feel bad. So it's, it's so, I, it's so I, I don't have the right vocabulary to say that when things suck, as long as you have the things that matter, then that sort of per overrides it. It overrides those feelings. But no matter how things are going well, when the things that you can't buy, like you can't buy love, you can't buy respect, you can't buy health, when those things are out of whack, it doesn't matter how much money you're bringing in. It doesn't matter how many views you're getting or, or what other people are saying online. Like, what, is, what does your wife think of you? What do your kids think of you? And when that's, when they respect you and they look up to you, dude, that feeling is, is worth an infinite amount of money. Did you, did you ever have a conversation with your wife where, so if you'd gone away and you came back, came back to the house and it almost, it felt like you were, um, not an imposter, but you didn't know where to fit back into because since you'd been gone, since you'd been gone, they'd fitted into their own routine. Like everyone had their own sort of dynamic to how, you know, how dinner was happening, how the morning routine was happening, the washing was happening, just boring old day-to-day -day stuff. They'd figured out their own logistics, right? Then insert you back into this, okay? And then you're all, you all of a sudden are like, you're not sure where you should slot back in again. So it's like, well, is this, is this kind of my responsibility here? And I can remember similar type thing, being away a lot and the rest of it, and Elizabeth sort of saying something along the lines of, you know what, it's actually easier when you're not here. Because it was, and I could totally understand it, because I'm now trying to like force my way in. I'm like, oh, dad's home, oh, here I am, I'm dad. And it doesn't work like that, because they're, they're, uh, they've already got their, their routines. And the only way around it is time, you know? And then, then, then all of a sudden you are in the flow of it and you're in that natural thing. And I couldn't agree more about the golden time with, like, the kids at that age. Like, I wouldn't give that up for absolutely anything. Yeah, your, your daughters are right, like, peak, right? I mean, you know, you maybe have another two years before they start getting super sassy and then maybe another two years after that to where they're like full on teenagers, yep. you know what I mean? I'll and uh, move here. That <laughs> yeah. That's, that's going to be rough. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think with bike racing or just bikes in general, 
the amount of time you spend away from your family is so normalized, right? Like we did a six hour ride yesterday, which I don't know if you looked at the stats, but dude, we averaged like 17 miles an hour. I know like take out the stops, like if you, if you just total elapsed time or whatever, but I mean, dude, we, I'm pretty fucked right now. <laughs> 103 miles, 11,000 feet of climbing at elevation. And we did it in under six hours, like pretty, pretty good. But anyways, six hours and we cut it short. And now you don't necessarily do a lot of that, but like I cut it short because I missed my family. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a huge storm. We're glad we cut it short. But like, if I was by myself, uh, I probably would have rode for ten hours, and that's just so much time. But that to me is like normal. There's no other sport. You wouldn't be like, hey, honey, I'm gonna go play golf. Well, maybe golf, but like, really, any any. You're not going to spend that kind of time away, but okay. Say you do golf. You're going to tell your wife every day. Hey, I'm going to golf. You just golfed. Yeah, I know, but I got to golf again. Okay. But you've golfed eight times in a row. Yeah. yeah but like, I'm going to probe. You see my training peaks? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to balance all that. You mentioned obviously trying to spend more time with the family, that kind of thing. This clothing line, this sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, this is potentially you trying to find, you know, another outlet, um, obviously another revenue source. Like, how are you, how are you making this work? Like, yeah, so uh, creator-led brands, if you want to get real technical about it, um, are very, very popular. Um, the business model between you having a merch to sell as, as a creator. I mean, some of the bigger creators have done millions of dollars. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but they did a limited release and he said, I, I listened to him on a podcast. He bought every black hoodie in America, every black hoodie out of stock in America and they sold it all. And he did something like 27 million in a week. Now, I'm not anywhere near that, but there's a definite business model to owning your own thing. And, and so this brand has actually been around for like almost six years because I didn't want to sell vegan cyclist merch because that's a double niche and how many people, even if they support me, want to wear that. So then how about we do something that goes beyond me, uh, something that is like, well, everyone can identify with, which is just ride bikes. like if you ride a cruiser or a mountain bike or a BMX, like who cares? It's, it's, it's open-ended. Um, and when I met my wife, we started a motorcycle shop together. So that's how our relationship started was us working side by side every day for three years. Uh, and so then we kind of went our separate ways career wise. Like she raised our kids and, and did, you know, that's what she really good at. And, now we sort of come back and I said like, hey, I need you to help me take this to the next level. And so we got a warehouse, about 10 minute drive from our home. Uh, she works next to me, placing orders and doing lots of stuff. That's been so cool to have like a routine and a place to go. Because for a long time I was just working out of my house. And another thing is that I worked so much because I could, like after dinner, if I didn't want to wrestle with my daughter 
or help my son with schoolwork, I could be like, well, I gotta go, I gotta go to my office and work. And so that was sort of like an escape from responsibilities. It, and, and then I kind of abused that a bit. And so I got more done and I worked, I'd work like till two, three in the morning. But now I don't have a computer in my house. I actually physically cannot work. I have to come here. And it's made this place such a, a great escape uh, to where, okay, here I'm working and when I'm out the door, I get to be a human. I get to focus just on the family or whatever. Even just riding. Like when you work and ride and do everything in the same place, it just, ugh. Uh, and so, yeah, this has been, this has been amazing. Now we did pull investment. That was super, super scary. Uh, so I've got two people that put not a crazy amount of money when you really think about it, but more money than I had. And so now, and one of them's actually a YouTube creator. Uh, and so actively sees what I'm doing. You know, one investor is like very hands off, like doesn't know who I am, whatever. But the other one is, watches me, you know? And so it's like, okay, he, he knows what I'm doing. He sees what I'm doing. And, um, I have to come back to them on reports and be like, yeah, I mean, the business model said this, but you know, we did these backpacks and we sold like two of them, but we, we bought like a thousand of them. And you know, that's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, but it's just been, it's been cool. I, I, I hope that we can keep growing it. But also then that comes back down to content of like, I need to make more content. I need more access points to drive people to the clothing. And I just don't make content enough. So I need to make more content. But then I wanna make good content. I wanna make really good stories, but that takes so much time to do. So where, where, where do you see me? As a total, like be, be a complete, Outsider, Psycho not knowing. analysis where you've, you've lost the plot. <laughs> yeah. In terms of just like the whole growth, like, do you see, oh yeah, those impossible routes were cool, but uh, I couldn't really get through the fifth one you did because it's kind of the same thing or um, yeah, you got a clothing company, but like, eh, I wouldn't personally buy that. You know, like what is like, well, how do you, and I don't want you to like just rip my life apart <laughs> but like what do you how do you see me as a brand versus how you know me as a person i think i've said this to you before like i i still feel like the the biggest value add you have to to any of the content you create is a unique story you do have a really good way of telling of telling a story it doesn't really matter from what i can gather it doesn't really matter what the event is it can be a gravel race it can be a it can be a crit it can be um just a, a random ride into yosemite there's there's enough there there's always there's always a narrative to it that that pulls you in um as far as all the other aspects to it i think you this is proper like analysis I, I totally i think the impossible route as good as it is suffers from being where it is on on your channel I think it's a really, it's a really valuable commodity that potentially does live on a on a Netflix or something like that. But I think we were talking about this the other day. It re all that all that growth it requires another person. It requires someone who's who's 
savvy in that game, who's willing to go into the Netflix boardrooms and have those discussions and sell you because that's, that's probably not what you're good at, you know? And to, to dot the I's of the contract and ensure that's all in, in place. And that's going to be probably the biggest roadblock, I would imagine, to get, to get that into the next level. I really like the brand. I think, I think the clothing's kind of cool. I think the, the look of it's pretty, pretty good. Um, I don't know. Like, you kind of ask me sort of what do I think. I, I mean, you are exactly who you are. I think that's ultimately something that pretty much everyone says. Yesterday we were on that ride and, the, you know, you, you have a lot of people come up and recognise you and say, VC, well, love your content and all the rest of it. And this was, what, she was a park ranger? Now she would have been, I'm going to potentially say in the late 60s, maybe, maybe 70. Like... And she's like, oh, VC, I love your content. And I just went, what the f... Like, uh, my mind was blown by that. Like, how that was... And I, you were starting to ask her a little bit, like, oh, what do you like? Or this kind of thing. Because I was fascinated by what was, she, what was she pulling from your Unbound video. Like, that, that all, all of a sudden kind of ripped me in. And... And that, I think, ultimately is probably the biggest thing that you have and why your audience is so big is because I don't think I was going to ask you this question. Like, who is your audience? I, I don't know. And that's probably a really good thing. Well, you can, you can dive into the analytics and see who makes up most of your audience. And I've always looked at the analytics and it shows like 2% are 60 plus. And I always think... Really? Or is that someone like, ha, hmm. but then yeah, yesterday having this park ranger who says she rides the trainer and watches my videos and she's like almost 70 is just, it was just unbelievable. But she made a comment. She was like, um, you, what did she say? Was well, like, she said, she said, uh, I really like that you incorporate philosophy into your videos. So she's like, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons on like how to just keep pushing, how to keep riding, how to keep pedaling. Um, so it's be beyond a story, beyond just cool graphics, but like I explain how I'm getting myself through that situation. And she said that she gr gained a lot of value from it, uh, which was just, yeah, it was just wild. Cause you just don't, you know, you, yeah. Um, but very, very cool. And I, she said that I was like, what made you want to be a park ranger? Because here's the other thing is that when I meet people, I don't ever think of anyone as a fan. Like that's not, that's just weird to me. And so I just want to now get on the same level uh, of them. Like they know a lot about me. How can I know a lot about you? How can I make this organic versus just, yes, you enjoy me, thanks, goodbye. Uh, and so I started asking her a lot of questions. And she said that she was a park ranger. This is her eighth season. She was about to retire. And then she said like, I wanna have some fun before I'm dead. I want to enjoy what I do. And then being a park ranger in Yosemite for an eighth season is like, can't really beat that. Like, that's so cool. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Much, much appreciated. Thanks for, thanks for sitting down today. Thanks for dishing, dishing it out to me yesterday. Even with dishing it out, I was looking back at your GoPro footage, man. I, 
I went as hard as I could to drop you. And you said you weren't feeling good or whatever, but you never went away. Oh, I wasn't going to be dropped. <laughs> like, like, I can feel bad, but like, I'm not letting that footage ever surface. Yeah. So don't worry about that. I, I really thought like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him. But that was good. I couldn't. It was, it was amazing. It's been really cool riding with you. Uh, I, I mean, I say this in joking uh, whenever I post about you, but I, I say I like you. I, I like you as a human. Um, I enjoy riding with you, and uh, and that's that's rare. It's rare to find someone that because cycling is so wide ranged that you could you could like someone on the bike, but they're in like a totally different demographic, and and they're just not compatible with you off the bike. And so, is there someone that you want to ride with and hang out with? That that which is weird, but because you hang out so much on the bike, you know. And, you know, I don't have any friends in Australia either, so it makes it easy. I can actually talk to someone. Yeah. All right, mate. Much appreciated. Uh, obviously, you don't need me to put links of your, your stuff down below, but I will do that. Uh, good luck in Bolivia. Let's hope you don't get freaking... Anyway, I won't even say it. All right. Thanks again, mate. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 